Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. My name is Sean Glennis, and I'm here with my fellow stinkeroo, Arlen. <laughs> How are you doing, Arlen? Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm. I guess I am a little stinky. Uh, so maybe it's apt. Um, but happy to be back for another episode of everyone's favorite podcast series about uh, Frederick Weisman. That's right. Um, yeah, so this is our 12th film. We started this podcast a, a year ago. So it's crazy. Yeah. Big uh, milestone for us, I guess. Only like three or four or five more years to go. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather not do the math on that. Yeah. Uh, but this episode, our guest is Jesse Cataldo, who uh, has written uh, about Wiseman on a few occasions for Spectrum Culture, um, including uh, he, he wrote a piece on Sinai Field Mission, which is very easy to find because there's like two things ever written about Sinai Field Mission. <laughs> um, but uh, this is this is the uh, 1978 film that uh, uh, looks at the buffer zone um and the uh e-systems and american government peacekeeping attempt between uh the two hostile parties egypt and israel and um it's the last shot by brain william brain a bit of do um big event next uh next episode we'll be starting up with john davy um but this was uh named one of the best films of the 70s by uh, Kahir du Cinema, uh, which is very funny and uh, appropriate very for them. them thing to yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, like instead of say like welfare, the easy choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and, and what makes it appropriate besides it being like one of the least seen of, of Wiseman's films is that it's, I would say, his most abstract, which is, you know, maybe partially mm-hmm. why it's also his least seen in some sense. But it's also funny because as we saw during our research, this seems to be the one where all of the film critics that were on like the Wiseman beat seemed to sort of get off the bus. Yeah. For better or worse, we didn't have a Walcott review to contend with this episode. No, no, <laughs> no, John, John J. O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess, uh, hello, uh, from the past to whatever film studies student writing about Sinai is listening to this right now, just because of what you were saying, the dearth of available material on the film. In some ways, we are just like very impo- important cultural warriors, um, <laughs> but yeah. So there's no none of those usual names, but and, and there may be like a more complicated answer for this. But I, I think it's fair to say that uh, Canal Zone was a bridge too far for some critics, as we saw, mm, and yeah. the Wiseman Project had just kind of like jumped the shark and and coverage waned. Yeah, it was interesting. Even in the Denby piece for Canal Zone, uh, which was, you know, very laudatory, that he, it was already a point uh, or an opportunity for retrospective. Like, he wasn't Mm. just talking about Canal Zone, he was talking about the body of Weissman's work, like, up to that point, as if Canal Zone was this sort of capstone, I think, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, maybe that people were having the sense of maybe jumping the shark, but also kind of, like, you know, 
the the major works are behind us and uh he's just kind of gonna keep doing this thing maybe maybe i'll check in here or there but like you know we get it (laughs) yeah yeah that's a good that's a good point um yeah and it and it being like sinai field mission being uh underseen and like or i guess underseen but like it being his most abstract at this point it makes it kind of funny that uh that Stephen mamber in his diary entry um in uh he said that that it would make a good entry point for a wiseman fan an opinion that i appreciate but i think we both uh disagree with (laughs) yeah yeah i i would oppose that uh i I feel like you might be throwing someone in the deep end a little bit but i guess i could see a case for it too of it you know if you're able to engage with this uh to any degree of success then you're gonna have a breeze with his other films you know yeah and it's not to say that this is like a it's not difficult i i don't think it's difficult i think it's funny but it's just it, it it can be seen as very dry uh like the landscape it's located in well um, as, as we talk about later there's this uh, three penny opera piece um and like uh this idea of like what's at stake in a documentary mm-hmm. and and not be if it that author rafferty like uh he was like if i can't tell what's at stake basically like what's the point you know if i'm not being told what's at stake more more explicitly like like uh and i think there's very clearly stakes <laughs> baked in the sign i feel mission very real and like consequential stakes but you know weissman's not here in this film or in any of his films to tell us what they are he's he's showing yeah. us how they manifest and allowing us the the freedom to derive you know what the stakes are from the material presented but like like uh, that that was another part of that piece that was just baffling to me uh, where it was like no stakes like you know we got global conflict here yeah yeah which and that piece is from 1990 i believe and um just probably reflects attitudes about documentary and what they serve as which is uh silly but uh yeah i mean like there are obvious stakes here but he's interested in the attitudes of people that are involved in the stakes more than what like what do they want like somebody like like in a boardroom like pushing buttons and like making important phone calls like they want like (laughs) crimson tide or something i don't know right yeah probably um you know and i think the there's like a grandeur to this film like a low-key grandeur about you know expressed in the cinematography um but also kind of looking at the banality of these like very high stakes consequential endeavors like even even at this degree of like global import you know there's malaise and like homesickness and and depression uh and alcoholism certainly uh um but like like you know isn't isn't that so much more interesting the the peeling back the surface and this revelation of these like very human elements than just sort of like oh no like israel might launch an attack you know like mm-hmm. kind of stuff right right yeah yeah i would co- so this is Sinai field mission is like the second part 
in Wiseman's trilogy of like Americans out of context or American culture out of context, specifically like having to deal with like the American government military. Um, and I could see like canal zone being like an entry point for a lot of people. Actually, I would, I would highly suggest that. Um, but this kind of like has this nice, like flipped, uh, image of like, I mean, it's still banal. Um, and there's like this sense of meaninglessness between them, but, uh, this film is less of like a parade of right. uh, like silly pageantry than um, than that is. Well, the, there's some parade. There's a it's a there parade is. of leisure kind of yeah. in the middle. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it, I, I, you know, the, I think I think as much activity of there as there is, it also speaks to the boredom that they're doing. You know, all these activities like ping pong and stuff. It, it was very much giving me kind of like teen rec center vibes. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, like after school program. To- yeah. Totally, just like sub suburban uh, ennui, you know the 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 no man's land when the final bell rings and before you know you your parents come home and like go to do homework or whatever like like that that's the degree of of activity available uh, to the people stationed out here. Yeah, and I want to talk about like that reminds me of the shot of like the jogger running around the, the compound and that uh, you talk later about how um, Davey talks about like somebody entering the frame and then like waiting for them to leave the frame. And that's a good example of just like this, this uh, flat shot of this, uh, this long shot of, of a character running in the background, running through. And there's a certain uh, ambience to this movie, um, to the way that he is looking at the, the grounds of, of this, this, um, compound uh that i i really appreciate and it captures like in that first 10 minutes you get a sense of it there is this like mix of it's like bombed out area this just like desert void and this this uh as i say later like prefab structures like these like very modern things um and it's just a weird uh ambience that i appreciate well, yeah, later we talk about, you know, uh, references to prison films and to post-apocalyptic cinema. But I mean, there's also an element to this of like these large scale epics, right? Like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type thing. And like, you know, uh, the cinematic language of that, uh, much like in Meat, where when he was evoking the myth of the West, you know, and uh, but the reality of the situation, you know, completely going against mm-hmm. all the connotations that those traditional cinematic representations bring as uh, is, is just you know a, a source of further like absurdist humor yeah for sure that's a good point um and kind of like talking about this uh this uh, this trilogy of like the american culture out of context um uh barry keith grant being the uh, smarty pants that he is uh, places this in context with like literature uh, that did the same. He, he mentions the contrast from 1787. Of course, we've all read that. Uh, and Henry James is the American from 1877, which he says profit from placing uh, an American in other cultures. Um, just kind of like watching how they, they react um yeah he talked he talks about innocence abroad i guess you know evoking twain but uh for dockheads out there there's also the great les blank film innocence abroad about like a bus tour of europe 
uh, <laughs> that that I was thinking about in this film because you know there's as we talk about later this like touristic uh, undercurrent to mm-hmm. the way that the Americans are engaging with this space. Well, like literally, where they're talking about like you're in this country, uh, you have got to make Cairo. You got to make Egypt one time. Whether you like or dislike it, you've got to make it. It's all right. Take some pictures. Yeah. You saw it all. Cross the Nile, see the pyramids. The, uh, the female aspect is not there. Right. But it's worth seeing. In, uh, in I mentioned this later, but um, there's also, uh, in, in this academic article by Toby Miller of... of uh, New York University, he, uh, before referencing Armstrong's piece on maneuver, which we'll be talking about next episode, he talks about the gaze of empire that this fits in, that this trilogy fits in too. Um, but so with, uh, we've talked recently with like Meat and Canal Zone as sort of like these timely films, like maybe accidentally, maybe not, or like a semblance of both, like some stuff that is like, advertent and some things that he couldn't have seen you know like the meat consumption thing um and this uh was was released uh one month after the signing of the camp david accords and uh which obviously again like he couldn't have seen that happening um but which is like two two agreements between the egyptian president and israeli prime minister um which led one one of the agreements led to a peace treaty and uh them sharing the nobel peace prize um and the other agreement was uh, a non-UN endorsed agreement that that basically denied Palestinians like right to independence. Um, and uh, in Jessica Talder, our guest, in his piece, um, First Sinai Field Mission, he says uh, that the final res- result of Sinai Field Mission is less polemic than bemusedly representational, attuned to painstaking politics of adjustment and bureaucracy profiling various forms of unglamorous societal maintenance. Um, and I was thinking about that, that use of like polemic and even amongst Wiseman's work of this time, I'd say, I'd say it's less polemic than something like Canal Zone. Um, but like it, there's like just absurd absurdity abound. And I bring up the Camp David accounts um, because there is like this absurdity that they're getting the Nobel Peace Prize while like one of the agreements was like denying Palestinian right to independence, right? Um, For sure. So it, it's a very rich, rich movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it it almost goes out of its way to strip the geopolitics from the proceedings, you know, and and like, uh, you know, we get one scene I think with like an Egyptian representative and and one longer scene with like an israeli officer Mm -hmm. and and like his partner or something um but like this this isn't really about the function of the mission so much as it is just uh the realities of having to operate the mission you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh uh you know we there's obviously a very dramatic scene uh, involving like a medical helicopter lift and and that really kind of strikes at the core of this film which is about one of Weissman's big interests is like how institutions express their ideologies and and if they're the same in practice as they are you know in theory um because you know as as we get in 
the scene with the Israeli officer, there's there are all these questions about jurisdiction throughout the film and all these questions about wiggle room and, and flexibility with the rigidity of, you know, they're, they're there for a very specific purpose. You know, Israel and Egypt both were like, we want the U.S., for whatever reason, completely beyond me to be the ones here operating right. this space. And like, you know, that's, that's the key thing that's going to make this work for us. Yeah. Well, we, we, uh, talk about it more later, but there is this initial scene where this, uh, guy on, on behalf of the government, I believe says that, uh, I think perhaps the easiest way to think of our role is to think of it in terms of a referee. Whereas the analogy isn't exact, you can think of a referee in either in a game such as football, boxing, or tennis, and the referee has to make a call. It's their rules, the two parties who are in conflict understand what the rules are, but somebody has to see that uh, uh, the rules are obeyed, and furthermore, that any infractions are called, and that the action stops and starts over again. Well, it's a bit like that. Um, the, in this case, the, ref, uh, the United Nations and the United States are in this referee role. We do not have power. Uh, the United Nations carries arms, but it is for self-defense. We have none at all. So our authority is simply that both sides have agreed on the terms of reference, and they've asked us as third parties to see that these are observed. So we make, in a sense, referee calls. This is a violation. That is not a violation. And these are matters of public record. And I mean, which is, is funny because he only knows how to explain it using sports metaphor. Um, and, uh, but when you see those meetings like that, I, I like, I, I was trying to like put it in context of like watching a referee in sports. And it's like, he says that the mission is like, the goal is to increase the confidence of the two parties, which is like not the same thing as being a referee. Right. Yeah. Well, I noted too, it's like, you can be a referee, but in this particular instance there's a danger of ending up like ted bernhard uh the the ref who got headbutted by dennis rodman <laughs> right it's like like you have these two belligerent forces on either side of you and you could piss one off right and it will be an issue um and you know they're not allowed to have like a certain caliber of weapons on on their bases but they have sidearms for personal protection you know like things yeah. could get hairy yeah. at any point and i think that's uh kind of like the situation in canal zone like it's inherently stressful and it it adds an undercurrent to everything that's happening of like stress and anxiety and danger um that's just like un unnatural and probably contributes to like the degree of revelry in in some of the scenes we get in the film for sure um and you were talking about like the the few scenes where we see um americans deal with um outside representatives like other uh various um middle eastern representatives and there's a funny scene that like and this is one of those things that this movie's full of where you don't really catch like there's you don't really catch what uh Wiseman finds interesting about certain scenes on first watch and a lot of it is just like embedded in this uh dialogue um and there's a funny moment when one of the Americans shows an instructional video uh to members of the Ghanaian military and says he's like it's it's in English and uh one of the Ghanaian languages and then like he plays the video and it says like exactly which one it is and it's like 
there's just like this casual disinterest in like trying to understand for sure these other uh cultures that uh exist um throughout the film yeah i mean it, it's it's not their job i guess to do that and like like it's um you know this isn't a u.s embassy but it almost is like you know when you're at the base you're in america and in a similar way to the canal zone right where like you're you're uh outside of these fences you know it might be desert and it was disputed territory that eventually went back to egypt but um like like in 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 these hollowed grounds you know we celebrate the fourth of july and we turkey on thanksgiving you know and we sing about mountain dew and like you know that that's who it is so if you're here uh you're you're dealing with us on our terms and and not vice versa there's also a funny disconnect i i wonder if you what you made of this but um we mentioned the mustachioed gentleman who seems like a general of some sort who has this great speech during thanksgiving and um all about like this righteous act of um the peacekeeping mission so you've actually participated in three things you participated in the first experiment by the united states in sending a group of unarmed people out, putting them between two hostile armies to help keep the peace, and it's been successful. You have, for the first time, represented our country in a peacekeeping role where the U.S. has always in the past chosen not to do so by itself. And finally, you have proven that a new dimension in international relations, a new dimension in diplomacy, is not only possible, but can be successful. I hope very much that in the future, I'll get to see all of you again. And if I don't, I want to thank you all very much for what you've done, and to wish you the best of luck in the future. He, like, Wiseman keeps the, keeps the speech going until he's like saying goodbye and all this. And he's, he has this like line about, um, I, if I don't see you again, like, you know, uh, whatever, like, and it, he, it, it implies that he's going to be leaving, like that he doesn't actually know these people that he just maybe like flew in for the ceremony and is like saying like, you guys are doing great. And then (laughs) is like leaving, you know, it's like a guest speaker at a conference, just like coming and going. Um, and so there's like this weird de- disconnect uh, that he's just there to like pat them on the back and go, um, which I think wh- I, I, I'm struggling to think of examples, but I feel like Wiseman has done that before where he just like keeps something going to like reveal this extra layer of like what a speaker, like since we don't know everybody's like position or exact details, like these little tiny lines that kind of like have these fun reverberations um, that like these guys are probably like, who is this guy? Or like, okay, okay, but you're not here every day. Right, yeah. I, I mean, there there's some shots of people listening to the speech and, you know, they seem pretty nonplussed, you know, just like, I guess, back to the teen center idea, just like a bunch mm-hmm. of bored, bored teens listening to this adult talk about things he knows nothing about, you know? Yeah. And, and like, you know, I, I think that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's kind of the speech that kicks off this extended uh uh 
part of the film involving like leisure activities and and like the party and the uh, happy hour scene and and everything um where it was just like you know god can this guy shut up so i can go play some atari Yeah, there's, you know, it's a, it's a job. It's not like the, I don't, I don't know how psyched these guys are to like be like. It doesn't seem like peacekeeping is really something that is part of their everyday conversation with each other. For sure, I don't think they view themselves in that way at all. And, um, you know, we talk about like kind of the fractured community or like different castes maybe within uh, the people who make up this base. But it, it, it shows up in a lot of different ways, you know, even even within the um, contractors, you know, they're passing the boot around, but one of them's not from Texas, and they're like... Come on, man. Goddamn Yankee, go drink the boot down on it. Let's go, Yankee. You know, it's just like, like even here, you know, quote, like 7,000 miles from home, there are still these divisions that exist back in like the motherland i guess that Mm -hmm. that are i guess help to perpetuate the idea that this is an american space you know that these these divisions still exist even here uh in this community of like 140 people or whatever um and just as it is back home yeah yeah for sure um and before we get off of like this idea of like this this referee of the world type thing uh i wanted to bring up um a line from uh jessica Taldo's uh in jackson Heights review where he talks about um in that film he says the conflict here is itself demonstrative of the sort of com- complex push and pull that wiseman's cinematic analysis thrive upon w- with one side's concept of community improvement potentially making that community uninhabitable uninhabitable for another and which which i really like and i think with reference to or uh, like um as it applies to sunai field mission and this idea of like increasing the confidence of two parties i don't know that like i think we definitely see shades of this this idea this push and pull between trying to uh improve a community while simultaneously making it uninhabitable i don't know that if we see uninhabitability like exactly here but we we see life made more difficult in those moments uh where you know these like bureaucratic moments um with other representatives um and more generally just like this claim of peacekeeping as like a cover for what it really is which is like imperialism and and empire um but yeah i think that's an interesting thing to keep uh in mind as we go just like instances um, that can be articulated with this sort of like uh we're we're making life better for you um you know, like City Hall is like a perfect example of like the the gentrification of of spaces and these people being like, we're gonna do jobs, we're gonna make all these jobs. <laughs> like, but what about all the traffic and like uh, raise rent and all this stuff? You know. Yeah, I mean, like this seems like a particularly tenuous situation uh, where and they bear this enormous responsibility, um, but they're you know the cracks are showing right and it's just like they they have to be the most stable party in this whole uh situation um but you know it's it's a human endeavor and they can only be so uh, stable mm-hmm. um and uh i guess one of the things you know that is 
a continuing or help helps to perpetuate this idea of stability and and the America is is this great scene we get of like Bible study, mm. um, harkening back to your opening the great line you know I, I guess he's kind of speaking to God like quite plainly we know we're stinkaloos we are no goodies we're absolutely bums of ourselves. You have to think what the other guys are like, <laughs> thinking of that, which you get a you get a look at them and. It's hard not to project like them being like, "What are you? Why are you talking like this?" <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe this was an instance of like performance for the camera a little bit because it's such a small group, mm-hmm. right? It's like four older guys, uh, much older than like the vast majority of people we see throughout yeah. the film, too. So it's just like you point. know, there's there's something about uh religion here that's both like generational as well as cultural that's not uh you know being uh propagated through the whole population here um unlike in say like canal zone where it seemed to be very central yeah yeah exactly it was like the church was like the watering hole basically um uh in town meeting place but that so on uh, Errol Morris's review or essay in, in Paris Review, which uh, I talk about a lot more on the second half of our episode, he, he has this list at the bottom of it of like nine like subjects that he just kind of like randomly talks about in terms of like how he appreciates Wiseman's films for various uh, things that they do. And um, he talks about religion and says that when Wiseman turns to religious ceremonies we feel the absence of god and i was i wanted to ask you about this because i think i think i agree or at least like i feel the perspective of a secular onlooker which maybe amounts to to the same thing um maybe that's what he's he's also saying but i don't know what did you make of that you know i it's really interesting because i think you can flip it also and something i kept meaning to bring up but we just didn't get to in uh primate and uh, welfare and meat is those three films very distinctly have an absence of religion yet i feel like as a viewer we're we're uh asking all these spiritual questions about Mm, what we're seeing you know it's like like there's there's no these uh, none of these characteristic scenes of like christianity or church or anything like that yet um they're the most like uh, existential and like spiritually inquisitive for sure uh, among the films right and it, it's just i think weissman is always asking us to think critically about whatever he's putting before the before us on the screen uh so it's just natural that when there's something there we're asking you know well what about the opposite of that whatever it may be yeah yeah and, and we'll talk about this when we get to what is it uh aspen <laughs> where where there are different shades where it's like this scene of a bible study that i find like just transfixing and there is a certain way that like religion i think that i mean i don't think it's as pure as like the absence of god because i think he still sees ways that uh religion can facilitate community in ways that are helpful for people such as that and it's interesting too because uh in this specific instance like the whole 
uh, conflict is like religiously tinged, right? Between Muslims and Jews. And here we are America in the middle the Christian nation. Right. (laughs) And like, like even the four people in the middle of the desert here stuck between these belligerent forces, like we must assert, uh, our faith, uh, in this situation, however we can. And it's called a mission. Like, uh, right. Yeah. 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 Um, which makes me think like, uh, Wiseman's mission trip would be pretty funny. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, it, you, you can just kind of like read this as that, um, as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Mombert, Mamber, <laughs> Mamber and Grant both, uh, invoke mash, uh, uh-huh. yes. and talking about this film, you know, we got like the frequent, uh, audio, like radio, uh, loudspeaker, uh things going and that's on another like post-vietnam americans out right of, out of context yeah americans out of place and also like you know very uh religious and spiritual uh as well and looking looking at, at these uh, situations uh through that lens um but like it, you know it was interesting last episode or canal zone we didn't talk about in the episode but offline you were talking about nashville um, mm-hmm. yeah and relating that and that totally came up for me in the concert scene right with the big american oh, yeah. flag I was, in the background yeah. i was thinking about it too yeah when i was re-watching sunday film mission i was like that came back to me i was like oh yeah nashville um because there's just like back-to-back songs right there's like two or three songs yeah. back-to-back and there's this american flag yeah um yeah good movie <laughs> Yeah, I I watched it for the first time based on your talking about that. Actually, did it did it function as a good double bill? Yes, I think so. With okay. canals in, um, with one of the things, just kind of speaking of like context for the proceedings, watching it today in like twenty twenty two, it was hard for me not to project, like experiences of quarantine onto this film oh okay yeah and like the way we get presented all this leisure you know the lone hooper out on the court in the middle of the desert (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. or like people kind of just like perfunctorily working out in the gym even though you know there's more more as a a thing to do and pass the time than for any anything else you know just like we talk about this post-apocalyptic element, but I, I really felt like as we hopefully are like ending these two years of like isolation and quarantine, like this sort of kinship with the people here and, and the way they're limited in their activities and, and trying to make the best out of their situation with, you know, whatever like video games or alcohol <laughs> uh, they might have on hand. Yeah, a lot of things that are familiar to a lot of people. Uh, over the last couple of years, but, and, and also there was like that rhetoric of like, po- like the world is post-apocalyptic now, you know, like you go outside and right. like that same, uh, type of rhetoric that we use to talk about this movie. For sure. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else on Sinai field mission? Um, well just, you know, we talked about sort of the relative dearth of available <laughs> writings. Um, but one I, came across that i enjoyed uh was by sam kaplan in a publication called real paper um and i'll, I'll just mention for listeners uh, uh, a great resource for us has been uh cinephiles this uh pacific film archive 
site uh, that that offers a lot of different resources. And it was interesting hearing Errol Morris talk about, you know, kind of becoming acquainted with documentaries at, at PFA through Franju and Herzog yeah. and uh, Bunuel. Bunuel. Yeah. And, and those kind of being key, key figures in sort of uh, maybe not necessarily the Weissman's development, but in, in, you know, useful ways to approach his style of documentary, uh, especially, you know, the heightened surrealism. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, we touched on the bar scene and like Cairo and not having this female element, but like there's this uh, undercurrent through the film of like male solitude and like a sexless existence oh, yeah. right and just like like we see a few women peppered throughout here or there but it, you know i have to imagine it was it would be an un- uncomfortable situation for them kind of with nowhere to go and all this kind of pent-up male energy uh you know really the only release for which we see is is like the big texas rager uh with, with yeah women, so. i think that's really smart to bring up because um well one the basketball the the person playing basketball is like a woman and she's by herself um but like that really uh enriches the scene in the bar where this guy is about to tell a dirty joke and the woman like barely a joke i told chris a joke last night that really applies to him as an old man He's in a rest home. He's, he's real old, you know. Come on in, Aggie. Uh-huh. I don't know if I can tell it now. Oh, Aggie, step out. <laughs> no, you're in the middle of a joke. Step out, Aggie. No, I just have my happy hour drink. Go ahead. She don't have her and beer. And it's, uh, Is that the truth? It's, there's a racket coming from this room and this nurse walks into the room and there's this guy beating both hands on the wall you know just raising all sorts of hell said you know mr smith you're too old for that kind of funny business says what's wrong he said it was the first time in 18 years i've had an erection and both hands are asleep (laughs) (laughs) it's it's horrible i mean it's it's like it's not that dirty and it's but it's exactly like I can imagine just like hearing hearing my dad talk about like being in the Air Force in the 70s. It was like I bet it was all these stupid jokes, you know, that these guys like couldn't get enough of telling because of like their like sexual like pent up uh, whatever. And but you see this great scene of this woman like coming up to get her happy hour drink and this guy being like, oh, I can't tell it now. This feeling of being like cut off, like for her being like cut off and for them being like oh yeah like there's a woman here um just kind of like changes the dynamic in really interesting ways um yeah yeah it's it's like the the exception right Mm -hmm. like like the default is that like yeah i could tell this joke we're getting rowdy or whatever and then it's just kind of like you know the teacher walks in the room it's like Mm -hmm. hush tones you know yeah and she doesn't even care like (laughs) right yeah yeah. she's just like i gotta get my drink you know Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah um and and kaplan I think, you know, he, he liked the film, which was refreshing because of uh, just what was available to read about it wasn't always the case. Um, but he was, he was saying that it's a kind, it's kinder. Uh, and he also calls it more desperate than Weissman's previous films, <laughs> thinking that it has a lot of compassion for these people and generally shows them doing good work. I guess, you know, thinking about 
when that does and doesn't happen in Weissman films. Like, you know, I guess Hospital is kind of the preeminent example of kind of extending grace and empathy and and understanding to the institutional actors. Um, uh, whereas, you know, I guess like Titty Cut Follies or Primate might be at the other end of the spectrum, but just sort of where tracking i guess throughout yeah. the films where where he's extending more more of those like positive elements to the people and where he's he's maybe being a bit more critical for sure yeah i like that well uh i wanted to read a bit of an email is that okay oh yeah sure uh, you can email us at wiseman podcast um and thank you for everyone that's reached out but i wanted to read just, just a part of this uh email from a friend in Pedro who is, or uh, this friend, friend Pedro, uh, in Portugal, um, who, uh, talked about how, uh, he wrote to us about how Wiseman was his dissertation, uh, subject. Um, and so he, and he has written a book, uh, on Wiseman, but, um, it's, it has not been translated to English. Um, but he says, needless to say, it has been uh, with an enormous amount of joy that I have been religious, been religiously following your podcast since episode one. I don't have enough words to tell you how important your podcast is in my life, not only during my night walks with my dog, but mainly because it immediately became mandatory support me- material in my classes dedicated to Wiseman in the context of documentary. Yes, you may believe it. In Portugal, 2022, your podcast currently holds the same status as of other mandatory readings alongside Vertov's Kino Eye Manifesto, Eisenstein's Methods of Montage, or Bill Nichols' Intro to Documentary, and will certainly continue to be so as long as I have the opportunity to, to teach. Um, and he goes on to say a lot more, but um, that I just, uh, I mean, uh, we're certainly not, not on the level of those people, but it was uh, very uh, heartwarming to hear that um, we are being used in like a pedagogical pedagogical um context um which is not something i I think either of us imagined would be the case yeah i mean you know truly like sincerest apologies to whatever (laughs) film students are assigned uh this episode and are listening right now I, i i feel for you um but but yes that that was great to receive and and very touching to hear because i mean we've we've talked about Kino Eye and we've, we've talked about Nichols on the podcast, you know, mm-hmm. so like, be, uh, I guess, you know, to, to borrow a phrase, you know, paying it forward, uh, <laughs> <laughs> feels good. Yeah. Um, and I mean, thanks for doing the work that you're doing. Um, like it would be awesome if students are watching Sinai field mission. Um, for sure. Not, not, you know, not to mention so many others, but, um, if, someone else out there is using us as a tool in their classroom uh please tell us because that would just be very cool to hear about um but don't tell us what your students think of the podcast <laughs> yeah unless you are a student and you love it and uh you listen to it you know in very personal moments uh yeah and like i said you can email us at wisemanpodcast at gmail um and I hope that you enjoy the talk we have with Jesse Cataldo. Yeah, see you later. Every night before he retires, he rekindles his fires with that good old man's hand. Hey, call me that good old man.
Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. Um, today, we are here with our guest, Jesse Cataldo. Um, Jesse has written a few pieces on Wiseman over the years for um, Sinai Field Mission and uh, at Berkeley and in Jackson Heights. Um, how are you doing, Jesse? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, so yeah, the at Berkeley and in Jackson Heights piece, these were for Spectrum Culture. Those were contemporaneous, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. At the time. Release. Um, before before reading your uh, Sinai Field Mission piece, I I didn't know you from Adam, uh, so I don't feel compelled to say this out of any like obli- like obligation or flattery or whatever. But um, I after reading all three, I was very impressed with. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you, you you're able to sort of like capture so sort of these core workings of Wiseman's work with this like, um, like prose that has a, a casual elegance uh, that I really appreciate and didn't have like this ostentatiousness of like flouting uh, everything that you've seen and, and that type of thing. Thank you. Um, so uh, when, when did you become interested in Wiseman? Um, my first Wiseman was Boxing Gym at the New York Film Festival 2010. Mm-hmm. And I think I went into that, I think he has kind of an imposing reputation so I, I went into that one kind of expecting something dry or just kind of scary in a way. And then it was the exact opposite. It's like this beautiful slice of life, just kind of slim 90 minute movie. It's very uh, formally expressive. It's beautifully shot. It's humorous, not sardonic though. It's a light touch and just kind of a world I would have never thought of entering myself, but spending some time in there with him was uh, great. So from there, uh, at the time, it was pretty hard to find his movies, which I think it still is in some sense. But I, uh, there, there was a blog, I think, that had most of them online oh. huh. back then, which I may have done some hoarding from there. But the quality, I think, was pretty bad on a lot of them. But that was kind of where my uh, exploration started. And I think the first big moment after that was actually Canal Zone. Oh, really? Soon after, yeah. And it was pretty mind-blowing. Like you just sort of like randomly picked that one? I don't know if that was the next one I watched exactly in order, but I think that's the first one I remember being like this, who is this guy? And like, what yeah. is he doing? It's really uh, entrancing and kind of the whole thing was just uh, really like this amazing document of like a very specific place and time, it's kind of a satirical masterpiece. It's hilarious. Like it's, there's so much there. And from there yeah. I was kind of hooked. Yeah. And yeah, it demonstrated kind of, even though, the title seems to indicate what the movie is about. There's always like the layers beyond that. You never really know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got just hooked on kind of charting these weird rhythmic flows between the movies where one seems to fall into the next and maybe time span is a jump, but then there's some kind of connection between two that are kind of a decade apart. And that's a little bit kind of for someone who's obsessive can pull you in. Yeah, it, it's interesting that the boxing gym would be, would be a nice introduction because it is sort of like, it's a bit more understated. Yeah, uh, and and it's like this short movie in the middle of like these like three hour movies, and it also like we were we were talking before we were recording about like sort of seeing these things like when you're cherry picking them out of, out of sequence, and that one is like, you know you you don't expect it to be a dance film unless you're that's, familiar that's with, true. Yeah. with Wiseman. Yeah. And I don't, when I saw it at the time, I don't think I saw it as a dance film. But revisiting it now, I see how that fits in. Right. But 
So, so yeah, I, so you talked a little bit, but like, what makes his work special for you? Like, besides these sort of like connections that you can make across decades? I guess I really appreciate the immersive aspect and just like, it's kind of, uh, I, I kind of, I really enjoy observing mundane scenarios in the world just mm -hmm. around as I kind of from day to day, but it's often difficult to like put yourself in the right frame of mind to appreciate that kind of thing and not get maybe a thing I was thinking about was uh, around the time I saw boxing gym, uh, my car was towed and I ended up at the Brooklyn tow pound, which is this horrible, bizarre place that's permanently stuck in 1971. And I was there for a few hours and it was just awful. I was, I was missing work. It was an aggravating situation, but I started to like, think of it like, this is like a Wiseman place. It's like somewhere he would depict. And as you kind of, view it under that lens you can start to like try to observe more what's how the flow of the place is and what the dynamics and that kind of thing i feel like it unlocked a certain way of viewing the world differently and then that kind of seeing that you go back to the movies and it's kind of a more curated version of that within the movies themselves and it's very rich and the dialogue between real life and the movies it just kind of creates this experience that gets deeper the more than you see that's really funny because um on like a, an earlier episode that we did um I, I had a similar experience of like being in this, like this, uh, in Detroit, what they're called Coney Island, uh, uh yeah. okay. and just like, uh, being like having this like kind of horrible moment, of of stasis and then just like, like locking into this like process. And yeah. like before you realize it, you're just like grasped by sort of this, like, you know, the quotidian, uh, workings of, of the, these like strange places. Yeah, so I try to kind of now apply that to places I go when I'm kind of annoyed to have to be somewhere and just think about, like, imagine myself doing Wiseman cosplay, I guess. <laughs> Recently, uh, uh, Frederick Wiseman's T-Mobile store, <laughs> a shorter yeah. version. It's, it's, uh, he can infect your brain like yeah, that. Definitely. And I, I, I feel like, especially, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but like in the course of just really diving in over the past year, this is our 12th episode now, it's a year. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's impossible not to go about like when you find yourself in those quiet moments, waiting in line somewhere or, or waiting for an order and just sitting without anything to do, uh, just kind of imagining everything around you as a Weissman film. Uh, I don't, I don't know how healthy or productive that is, but it, it's definitely something that's happening. Uh, for sure. I think it is healthy because I think the films are very empathetic towards just kind of the experience of every person in the milieu and what they're up to. And they're also the idea that like everything is work. Mm -hmm. Like there's always someone doing a job of some kind, it seems like in these movies. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, I think, you know, the, sometimes it's explicit uh, more so than others, but I mean, labor is certainly one of yeah. the, the key themes and interests and, you know, it's really interesting, I guess, getting in a Sinai field mission, just like thinking about that as more of um, a literal exploration being what we learned that the vast majority of the people operating this base are, are contractors or, uh, yeah. like, uh, for the government. Not they're like 20 government employees and the rest yeah. are all from this like Texas uh, company E-Systems. Um, but thinking about less so maybe as in some previous like more heavily government organizations where there's this 
idea, maybe not necessarily of altruism, but of, you know, civil service at least, yeah. right? Where Whereas here, it's very much like here to do a job uh, for, you know, money. Yeah, it's contract work. And there's also the kind of conflict between the two sides in Sinai with the government workers and the E-Systems. And it's I find very difficult to determine which side is which sometimes mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, before we, we, we jump into it, I was going to say that uh, as sort of a preface for this this movie, um, we, Arlen and I, are, are, are thankful that, to have you on because there's so little about this movie and um, like Seriously. out there. Yeah. And it it's funny because like I, I think as we've gone about this process, like um, the the way that that we each take notes like has just sort of ballooned. And yeah. with something like Canal Zone, where there's just like a actually a lot uh, like a lot of contemporaneous uh, reviews and and literature out there, it's able like it's easy to like amass a lot of notes. And then you have this, which is like almost nothing on it, and. Um, and I noticed myself, and I think Arlen, you as well, like the notes still like amassing. There's just like, hopefully we're understanding the work more and and being able to to appreciate uh, more from it. But um, it's nice to have someone on that has actually written about it since there is so so little about it. Um, oh, and man. so I was curious, why did you write about uh, Sinai Field Mission? Was it just like an anniversary thing? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't think it was an anniversary. I think it was just uh, a kind of revisit general. There's like for Spectrum, we do kind of just, you can kind of revisit anything you feel like revisiting. Uh-huh. And I think I was due for that. And I was just, what have I been watching recently that seems interesting to write about? And I think I'd just seen it uh, a week before or so. And I was kind of entranced by it. And it's a, definitely a weird one, but. Yeah. yeah. For, for... <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it may have improved upon like viewing it now. I think it may be more clear what it's about than viewing it at the time mm-hmm. somehow because just all that's happened since it mm-hmm. seems like kind of it's a, a predicting something that was later to get a lot more serious it's like shown in its early stages there yeah you talk uh, about like the uh you know how uh e-systems has been absorbed by raytheon um yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you say like uh, that the, the film shows the seeds of a system that has led to the U.S. maintaining 800 military bases in 70 different foreign countries, as well as captivating dispatch from a territorial squabble now spanning over 70 years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what E-Systems like, you know, represents is this this American machine that has like been alloyed from this mix of business and exactly. Um, yeah. And, and the government, which is something that we talked a lot about with, with Canal Zone, where you have like this, like I said, like tidy metaphor with the governor, who's also the owner or the president of yeah, the company. Yeah. Um, and uh, you have like in, the, in this, in Sinai Field Mission, this general dude who gives the speech during the Thanksgiving dinner about how great the mission has been and oh, yeah. the E-Systems group and, and the government members just been like cooperating, cooperating to the point where it's indistinguishable. Um, yeah, he has a great quote. I wrote it, I think I wrote it down. It's about- uh, That dude with the Teddy Roosevelt The, the amazing mustache. mustache, the whole thing. Yeah. The, the, uh, they're growing closer and closer until they're indistinguishable from one another, I think it was. Yeah, and then, which is funny because like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, you have these like, it's contrasted with these like managerial problems about like, well, they're not supposed to touch our food and like you're not yeah. supposed to like play their like foosball or whatever. Um, recording studio. Yeah. Uh, and Barry Keith Grant in his book pulled out like the Calvin Coolidge quote, like uh, America, like the business of America is business. 
kind of applies here, but um, I, I think we, we get a, a we, when I was reading your other reviews at Berkeley and, and, and Jackson Heights particularly, um, it was interesting to think about uh, Sinai Field Mission with those like later films. And we, we get such, uh, we, we get a slightly different iteration of this like idea of, of mixture of business and, and, um, and government uh, in, in Jackson Heights. Um, yeah. you, you talk about like the collective interest of corporations and other powerful entities that, um, the business, well, the business development or business improvement business, district. Yeah. Yeah. Kind Terrible. of represents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there's more to talk about in terms of these later films inside my Sinai field mission as we go along. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, uh, it's interesting to contrast like these ideas of community between, um, these early films and, and what he ended up being more interested in later in, in life. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, that's interesting. And I mean, in Jackson Heights, you know, if we're talking about the bid, like, I feel like that's very much, uh, an opposing force for the film, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the community of Jackson Heights, the people, the residents, you know, are, are the institution i guess um if we're if we're using that phrase um in in here in sinai you know the 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 corporate entity is also this it's like there's no yeah. demarcation there's no yeah. Uh, uh, yeah uh within without of it you know the without are the israelis and the egyptians um and like this this ends up being surprisingly surprisingly inclusive beyond the, those two populations the u.s government workers and the uh contractors you know we have the u.n people and the Finns and the ghanaians who all are also you know to different degrees they're a part of the mission but as you were saying you know the the divisions are still pronounced and and cause uh points of conflict as well yeah, definitely. There, there is no existing community in this place. It's all been formed very uh, quickly and kind of smashed together. And there's these sort of concentric rings of, I don't know, not, not necessarily power, but whoever is in the inside to the outside. And there's a great image of the Ghanaians watching the baseball game through the fence. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's just so sharp about things like that. And, and you know, the way he sequences things and, and draw, pulling meaning out of it beyond just you know people watching a baseball game but like yeah the metaphor is so readily apparent yeah there's a lot of consumption of of culture here and um like we see like uh one of the many uh pieces of leisure that that they are taking part in is, is playing pong and uh um, i love that shot yeah yes. and then um and then they like this one guy is watching like a belly dancer on tv and he's just like leaning forward um it's like the anti-maxell logo um and he is uh just like entranced by it, whatever but um in barry keith grant's book he has like a good line about this being like it, it's just another piece of it's just an, another image that that is being consumed on the on the screen for him like this is the closest that these um americans get to really taking part in the culture that they're in <laughs> besides when they go to the yeah. bedouin burial ground which is like just an amazing insane scene. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean like it it's you know this trilogy of like canal zone sinai and maneuver you know looking at like americans abroad and like different levels of like entrenchment abroad i guess and how americans operate and build or don't build community while abroad um 
you know, if Canal Zone was kind of like the, if on a one to ten scale, like a ten of like entrenchment and community building, like this really felt like a a, a tourist approach, like the 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 ephemeralness and um, like temporary of mm-hmm. the, the endeavor like kind of is inherent and underlies everything like everyone knows you know this is like i'm here for x amount of time and yeah. then i'm back to texas or wherever you know and like i feel like that really comes forth in even the physical infrastructure of these bases right they they're like mobile units you know kind of thrown together i think you know we we read some pieces about the the mission itself and like you know they put this all together like three months before the deadline or something all the physical infrastructure um and and that scene with the bedouin berry ground you know you get this great line they're being given a tour and one of the uh, people out there is like yeah you know it's just like ruins out in the desert um and just kind of giving the sense like oh okay there's like no uh like engagement with whatever local culture there might be here i mean obviously it's a desert but but the greater you know region um and it's it's really there's an element to this film i think that you know we've talked a lot about weissman and film genres like to me this seems most pronounced as a prison film another prison film for weissman and it's like a self-made prison you know they've they've built the cages and the fences and the, the barbed wire around themselves uh packed it with you know all the booze and like video games and leisure uh table games uh they could and like you know do their job uh but but do it from within these grounds and and don't really have anything beyond that work and i think you know a a part of this is is really boredom you know we get a lot of leisure but it it all seems to be Mm -hmm. like uh grasping to fight the boredom yeah, there's there's an air of desperation, definitely. And yeah. I think because it is a desert, it's easier for these people to assume that there is nothing there before they arrived and kind of just like they're in a void space. But <laughs> I, the I think the, I, the buffer zone, exactly. If there's not, and for what it, it looks like, there's nothing there, but I'm sure, I don't, are there still people populating different areas of the peninsula during this time? It's unclear to me. You know, I, 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 I there have looked up on the Google Maps app yesterday. I just turped typed in Sinai field mission and it, yeah. and at the, a cafe popped up just like in the middle of like, you know, this mountainous region that didn't seem to have any roads around. Okay. I'm like, okay, maybe there's, you know, encampments or, or something. I, I, around. Yeah, I, but, yeah. I know currently the Southern coast of that area has resorts and things, but I'm not sure yeah, if at the yeah, time right. if they had a car later, if they were closed at the time. Uh, also, um, I assume from the first time I saw it that they were kind of somewhat wedged in the center of the peninsula, but they're mm-hmm. on the far uh, western edge along the uh, Suez Canal. Right. When you were talking about sort of this like bombed out area, I wanted to mention like this opening pan that is like really, uh, it's really something. Um, shortly after we we hear them refer to this area as the buffer zone, which um, like I really wish uh, Wiseman would have called this <laughs> buffer zone. But um, <laughs> Uh, we get this this shot of this truck driving down the road and then this zoom out that like exposes this area of sand and like mountains and it's just like you said like this void um and it's just like this this canyon like area uh and then this like little building on the hill with all these like antennae 
Um, and then it shows like the surveillance facilities right after that. Um, but uh, it has like this kind of what you were, you were saying, Arlen, of this like temporariness, like it has like sort of this prefab uh, feeling to this, this like emptiness to these uh, like pop-up shelters. Um, and it all also like conjures up this idea of like post-apocalyptic, which we, we talked about with Canal Zone. Um, but whereas that is like sort of cosplaying America um, in this like bubble, this is like, seems like an actual like apocalyptic zone where they have to like start from scratch. Does, yeah. um, and they, and we see them like sort of, I guess you could read into that, like they're trying to do that, you know, like where, where else do they have to start? Like they're there with nothingness. And the way that they're able to like navigate daily life is by um, doing it with these these uh, representations of Americanness, um, particularly Texas. Texas is yeah. There's a, there's a lot of Texas. I assume most of the E Systems employees are from I think it's Dallas or mm -hmm. somewhere around Dallas. And uh, the units that they're I'm not sure if it's the entire base or just the residential units. If you saw their Holiday Inn converted Holiday Inn modules. Oh, I didn't notice. And it's mentioned, I think, in the Wikipedia on the Sinai uh, field mission. And I was looking through this kind of report that's online that's very long. So I was browsing through it. And it mentions in there that they are um, a holiday inn that was constructed outside of El Paso and for whatever reason never opened and was disassembled and trucked over to the peninsula and reassembled there. <laughs> very bizarre. So it's even more Texan than you would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it, that's also like that prefab, like, you know, buying yeah. a prefab home and just like taking it wherever I want. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's an amazing amount of wood paneling. Just they're in the desert and they're just surrounded by wood paneling on all sides. <laughs> it's fantastic. I think something interesting to relating it to the previous film and, and thinking about this post-apocalyptic idea, and I'll, I'll note this film came out the year before Mad Max. Um but shares some similar imagery throughout the film. We get like these bombed out, burned out vehicles that just kind of litter the desert and serve as like a reminder of like what's possible, <laughs> what could happen here, you know, right? And like, um, and in terms of like just, you know, in Canal Zone, they had this thing on the horizon of the handover, whereas here there's this thing on the horizon of like, war could break out possibly at any moment you know and there are these visual reminders constantly uh as well as just like you know the situation you look out and you see nothing but desert and you you remember that you're not in america and i think you know things like the 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 rager and like obviously the fourth of july party you know these are these comforting elements in the same way for zonians like these like um, elements of americana are like comforting and reassuring that like you know you're you're in some familiar safe space and you know the danger is over there yeah yeah the opening of this movie is so good still the car coming over the hill to the destroyed vehicles and then just the camel staring at you and then <laughs> this guy is involved in some mysterious process through the sand he's digging something up he's putting it back on under, i think it's the uh something to do with the radar system yeah that that shot was really interesting there that sequence rather where he he parks the car he like takes something out of the trunk and he starts walking to this area and then we get a reverse shot we got a cut like mid stride 
as he goes and digs this thing out of the sand. And then as he's fiddling with this thing, we get these insert shots of like close-ups on his hands doing the work and just thinking about, you know, Weissman as an editor and like the reality fiction's idea of like a construction of a scene, like you you think about him and and brain like just running around this guy as he's doing his work like yeah. like just how active uh they are in in the the shooting of this and then of course in the editing but like it, it's really kind of a tour de force and and it's just as you know something as simple as a guy getting out of his car and walking over and digging a hole in the ground but like there's something about it that's so engrossing and like interesting knowing that just the parameters of their shoot that that it's one camera one mic and you know they're doing this all live and i assume they're not saying hey can you stop there for a second and let us you know reposition i mean they may have but um i i i i was noticing stuff like that throughout that felt really rewarding uh just seeing him building these sequences from from the reality material he has a lot of fun with that, with with the uh, the leisure stuff as well, especially for like sure, the yeah. billiards and the darts. But um, Leo Goldsmith, who um, curated, I believe, like this retrospective of reviews on NotComing.com that we we've read some before. He he wrote about um, uh, Sinai Field Mission. Uh, this was back like fifteen years ago, and um, he he talks about this scene that you're mentioning, like burying this thing in the sand, and like how nonchalant this guy is even though his like consequences might be global and that this is sort of like the films like there's this discord between this like um these critical duties and then this 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 very like um perfunctory attitude as he says and it's a different iteration of of like this we've talked about like the gap between ideology and practice um a lot and this is sort of a different iteration. Like it, it's, it's not so much of like welfare's like altruistic intention versus like the log jam of the system. Um, and this is like a comical and, and, and I think absurd is like a key component of Sinai field mission. And as, as we talk about it, um, but, uh, this, yeah, this absurd contrast between global responsibility and just like boredom yeah. and meaninglessness that, which Errol Morris talks a lot about in his piece, but, it's it seems like no one wants them no one wants to be there and no one wants them to be there because that that scene afterward where they're talking to the uh, Israeli army officer and there's this very long explanation of uh, what their specific mission is what they're doing and he's still kind of just but why are you here like at the end of it yeah and and I mean there still is like um, like that guy in the beginning who explains it which is like the the layout of the beginning of this film like is it's so good. But uh, yeah. and it's a lot like Canal Zone, where we we get a layout of the place, and then um, we get this guy who just like explains everything to us. I mean, Wiseman uses it that way. Yeah. The uh, Sinai Agreement arranges for a an empty zone called the buffer zone between the two sides, so that there isn't any physical contact and the possibility of accidents uh, or misunderstandings occurring. On either side are limited force zones, which phase out the uh, military power that is uh, close to the other side. And on either side of these are missile-free zones. So that the uh, side, so that the frontier itself is uh, created to keep the two sides apart 
and to diminish the amount of military force that is uh, close and can uh, be used to intimidate or to confront the other side. In order that this works, the uh, agreement allowed both sides the uh, many opportunities and ways of checking that these agreements were kept by aerial reconnaissance and by stations on the ground. The United Nations was given the overall responsibility for ensuring that the buffer zone uh, was empty and for checking on the limited force zones and seeing that the uh, armaments allowed there, uh, 75 tanks, 8,000 uh, personnel, eight battalions, were in fact respected. The um, Sinai field mission, the American part of this uh, arrangement, was asked to uh, watch over the little central area here in the desert highland, the uh, Mitla and Giti passes, to see that there were no threatening approaches to this area, and to report if there were, or if anybody actually reached this area. Secondly, the Americans were asked to watch the uh, operations of the two uh, surveillance sites and uh, report on whether or not these were operating as uh, agreed in the Sinai II arrangement. The Sinai field mission has uh, three watch stations, one on an escarpment as far east as possible called the Giddy East watch station. Uh, another one here at this end of the uh, uh, Mitla Pass as far east as possible called the uh, Mitla station and then over here, um, a Mitla West station on another high escarpment overlooking all the central flat sandy area of the canal area, the limited force area, and the buffer zone. And, and he says very like plainly, the mission is to increase confidence between the two parties. Um, but that's not what Wiseman shows us. Like, if anything, I mean, we see a lot of like obstinance and you know unwillingness to understand each other and work with each other. Then one of the one of the guys calls. Um, uh, American government representative, like inflexible at one point. Yeah. Um, so there still is that sort of like idea that like gap in, in ideology and practice. But I think the majority of, of the film is this like really funny, like absurdism of, yeah, like you said, like nobody really wants to be there and they're just there because like it's a job. Yeah. And it, it seems like uh, it's hard to like, uh, exactly understand the stated functions of the UN or what they're supposed to be doing, but it seems like something the UN should be handling, but instead you have 140 Texans for some reason, <laughs> which I think is confusing to everyone. And well, that's one of the, that's one of the, the great like lines of the film is like the, the mustached guy again during yeah. Thanksgiving. Like, so he gives up, he gives this great uh, speech during Thanksgiving about like how this peacekeeping mission is like, one of a kind and like he's like you know it's it's not the first time that uh uh people have like stepped in to, to keep the peace but it's usually a bunch of nations through un but we're doing it with just one country and it's like, yeah exactly you guys are doing great and it's like this is uh this is not a good thing <laughs> like obviously like uh one of the one of the uh, academic theses that mentions cyanide field mission um talks about like the gay like how this this trilogy uh maneuver in Sinai field mission and canal zone is like this. It's interested in the gaze of empire. And that's very clearly what this guy is, is talking about. Um, yeah, not, not, not going through UN, but just like, we'll take care of it ourselves. We're going to keep the, the peace just, just 
by ourselves and it's like contracting private organization yeah i mean like with both the mustache man and we read this piece um in u.s army war college quarterly uh that was just more of kind of like you know explaining what what the field mission was and how it came to be and um but in both instances it it's talked about like a like a resounding success and you know we know weissman always looks for these supposedly exemplary examples of institutions that are doing good work and seldom does he actually find that that to be the case um but it is interesting how it's spoken of in these terms as kind of an unequivocal success u.s diplomacy making you know peacekeeping possible and and throughout the film we see people just like uh think of their roles in different ways one is peacekeeper but one is like a referee right we keep Mm -hmm. getting that uh, analogy um but to think about sort of what would come hearkening to what we were talking about earlier about like u.s contractors and kind of black ops abroad as like and like this template you know supposedly diplomatic but like you know oh this this worked out really well in sinai we should do more of this stuff in other places and just knowing how that's gone um you know to to your point earlier like you know weissman kind of foreshadowing something uh that was kind of nascent at the time yeah and knowing what e-systems turns into or what it was at the time maybe and kind of illuminates this because they're there for diplomatic purposes but there's what 20 25 state department employees and there's 140 e-systems people so it kind of gives away like what what are they actually doing here and it seems like maybe there's some more element of surveillance and kind of testing surveillance technology Mm -hmm. and just they're under the auspices of doing something uh, beneficial to everyone and in some sense it is because Israel and Egypt, they can't really talk to each other. They need someone to kind of function as an intermediary just so that both of them can, uh, they don't want to be seen to kind of be too uh, friendly with each other. They need to have the illusion that someone is mediating between them. But at the same time, uh, I think E-Systems is there for a different reason at the same time. They're mm-hmm. kind of pursuing a different end than just pure uh, mediation of the, there's some exploitation of the scenario for their own ends and, yeah, they, there's a quote from this Washington Post article for when uh, later, when, a little before E-Systems is absorbed by Raytheon. It says, if Big Brother ever took control of the United States, E-Systems Inc. would surely be its prime contractor. <laughs> so I get the sense that, yeah, when I first saw this, I was just seeing this as a kind of just depiction of bureaucratic snag, uh, snags, tangles. But looking at it now, it seems like there's something more sinister going on mm-hmm. beneath the kind of internal conflict which you see crop up, uh, I think, near the end with the Israeli medevac situation where yeah. this guy has to kind of clear with all these different parties and then the UN is fine with it, Israel is fine with it, Egypt is fine with it, but then they have this internal battle. It's not really clear who's... I'm not sure if he's an E-Systems employee or he's. I think he's E-Systems because he states USG giving him resistance. Punch your speaker. You talk to the ship supervisor. You give him the message. He puts it on the teletype. That way, he is in full knowledge of everything that's going on. Sure. Okay. Sure. Meanwhile, the guy's bleeding to death. No. You all you have to do is to, is to give it to him by voice. I'm not talking. It's much faster. If he...
if you go in and you do them yourself. He has a copy of it. Okay, you know, you know from yourself from having, you know, back, back in the States, if you have the secretary and you dictate a message to her, you know, it, it's much faster if you can just sit down and, and crank it out yourself. It is, but we're supposed to be working in cooperation with those guys. And they're upset. Well, fuck them. Because it's a medical emergency. I realize that it's a medical emergency. But in this case, you were not getting the guy out. You're simply advising E1 of what has taken place. They already know from the telephone. It does not hurt. It's kind of just difficult to determine who is fighting who and for what reason here. Yeah, in that Army War College piece, um, they were talking about like just their role as, as being very firm and rigid and inflexible in terms of like determining violations and protocols and like that lengthy scene with the Israeli officer, you know, is kind of all about that where he's, oh God, he's really annoying. <laughs> like, like There was another story about two weeks ago with a bus in J1 that uh, a bus was coming, was trying to get out of J1. There was no UN escort. The UN came, oh, wait a second, a second. The UN came about two minutes after the prior the time. And then your chap in the gate didn't let him out. And this is ridiculous. Well, because I... we can't play on two minutes business. Well, we're going to. No, no, no. Uh, they, 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 they're trying, they, we can't. No, if we are delayed, others. if we are delayed in two minutes, I will not accept a no as an answer. Unless there is a purpose behind it. Well, the, you because cut me uh, off before I get you. If we, if we have to set a cutoff time, uh, then we, we're gonna, we, we won't abide yes. by If it's a daily problem, I'll, I understand the, but if it's once in a blue moon, it's, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's a decision that will be made by the, by the senior officer. Yes, and especially, time, and especially, especially if we were on time, and it's a UN, it's a communication between the SFM and UN. It's no, not, it's not a communication between oh, the SFM and UN. Oh, it is. No, it is not. Oh, it is, because the communication <coughs> because has to we be don't, between you we and don't, the UN. No, we don't, we we don't do need a permission from the SFM to go into the buffer zone. You need the permission to go out of the gate. Yes, yeah, right you are. So we could have taken the bus 10 minutes before that out of the gate and wait in the buffer zone for the escort. But you would have been in violation. This is between us and the UN, not between us and the SFM. He's, he's looking for this leeway and wiggle room and he, he thinks, you know, the the procedures aren't happening as they should be and they, his issue is with the UN and their issue is with the UN, <laughs> yeah, but like so their issue is that. not with each other and like there seems to be no transitive I mean, property at play here. It, it, it resembles so many uh, scenes in welfare, right? Like this is not mm -hmm. our problem. This is like you need to go down to Fifth Avenue or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, but, uh, also like in terms of talking about Sinai film mission as like this, uh, like onto something like sinister or like nascent, um, there was, uh, this like academic essay by Aman Hamam that we, that we looked at that just like briefly talks about Sinai. Like, again, like none of these things are all about Sinai film mission. Unfortunately, they all, yeah. they all just like barely talk, talk about it. But, um, he's a academic at American university in Cairo and talks about how you couldn't make 
Sinai field mission now because of this like Middle Eastern distrust and like suspicion of the use of cameras um, by like yeah. outside state officials and, and media. Um, it's a, it's just like, yeah, this another example in many of like Wiseman's incredible access and like just a peek into a world that gives us a better context for American missions. Although he, he, that, that guy uh, also talks about like how I should say five years before Sinai field mission, there were Egyptian filmmakers making uh, films that use similar techniques as Wiseman's to document the 1973 October war. But um, in terms of the American context, state sponsored and like to support, you know, the party line, um, but, but similar and yeah. And, and like documentary techniques. Um, When I was, I I was talking about like sort of these, looking at these later films, uh, like the, the last like four or five Wiseman films, um, in juxtaposition with uh, Sinai Field Mission, um, like uh, specifically like City Hall and Ex Libris and in Jackson Heights, uh, which are preoccupied with these with the ways that communities can be uh, diverse. I guess is kind of like nebulous corporate speak now. But like um, you talk about it in your review of in Jackson Heights, Jesse, about like um, the the way that disparate groups just like shape culture or shape community um and obviously monrovia complicates this in a in a really rich way but with these portraits of community like canal zone and sinai field mission that are just like insulated communities and like limited ideas of what america is uh juxtaposed with these like later like extremely rich uh portraits of uh pockets of america uh, give us a really good idea of Wiseman's interests uh, here um, with this, with, with these two films particularly. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I also think a lot about a scene with this. Um, yeah. Where, and also Missile as like a, a fi- like films about cooperation, like uh-huh. that are driven by cooperation, but uh, a scene as like this, social microcosm that is trying to figure out how to function together and is just like rife with managerial problems which we haven't talked about yet with Sinai Field Mission but there's just like this you know hilarious stuff about like damage to property uh after all this like partying and they're like trying to figure out who's doing it yeah with the Texans uh Ed I'd like you to head up an investigation of uh some broken furniture we had uh, Saturday night. I believe it was, uh, there was a group of fellas uh, after the bingo game that had a party. And uh, Sunday morning there was a pile of furniture that looked like it, the seats had been torn off some of those kitchen chairs. <clears throat> I'd like to find out the details behind it and anybody that was involved in it. Uh, and at a minimum, I'd like to see letters of reprimand issued to those people. This is the third time that something has happened uh, like this. Each time it's gotten worse, and each time it's been in the exact location, principally by uh, some people in the facility section. That I, I'm not saying they were the ones that did it, but they, it was their party. It, it happened at. 
I don't have any idea of any people that were involved. Uh, but there were, there were some broken glass and uh, some chairs that were damaged, uh, some light bulbs that were broken, and just, you know, it's not necessary, and we need to get it stopped. I agree. And uh, if it's going to be uh, like it was with the sunbathing on the modules. If the people can't respect the furniture and can't conduct themselves properly, then we will ban any outdoor parties. And they keep, we'll just keep picking away at the privileges until they're all locked up, I guess. So it, I'd like to know what the real story was and, uh, and issue letters of reprimand at a minimum. Last night I was up in the office area and I heard from somebody that some of the UN troops were eating the late meal in the, the mess hall, midnight chow. And by the time I was able to get over there to to see who it might be, uh, a group of some fans were leaving the uh, leaving the rec hall and getting ready to board their vehicle and leave. But as I went in, I got the impression that there were six of them that were uh, were in the the cafeteria area and it had either picked up some chili or some, you know, not a full tray of items, but just a few items. And I had the impression that this was. Uh, taboo for all of the UN troops and just wondered if there's some way we need to notify uh, uh, the Finns or get in touch through USG and see that it stopped. And we have a sign up there now that's except a midnight meal is SFM personnel only. Uh, perhaps we need to jack up our own people here to be sure that's enforced. I'll check on that tonight. I, I love that scene. Like, it's so funny, but it's also completely humorless. And I guess that's what makes it funny is because they're they're speaking about this, these, like, busted rec room chairs and, like, food privileges with in the exact same tone and, like, severity as they do, you know, everything related to, mm. like, you know israeli convoys and like how many weapons you can have on site and all these things like there there doesn't seem to be any demarcation it's all within the work uh and and everything like like i guess this this gets into like just the totalization of the institution is so is to such a degree that uh you know some busted rec room chairs uh carries the same like severity as as these global uh conflicts mm -hmm. Yeah, budgetary concerns. It's all part of like the same big managerial structure. And before that meeting, there's that great little bit where it's unclear what's happening, but there's a guy burning trash. <laughs> and in the trash is clearly the damaged stuff from the party. And so right. they, first, they're just not really sure what you're seeing. And then that develops into like, you can kind of maybe just because I've seen it before, you can say, okay, that, this is the whatever they wrecked at this kind of insane drinking event they had the night before. But then as that develops, you notice that on the guy's hat is a lizard. Did that was this? so fun. Yeah, I noticed just, that. Yeah, just, it's just the kind of these, the way these scenes open up as you watch them and get richer and richer. And suddenly, like, has this lizard been here all along? <laughs> just appear on this guy's hat. Is it a pet? Is it from the desert? Where did it come yeah. from? Uh, interesting, too, as we talk about, you know, things that are nascent and to come, you know, all the things happening right now around burn pits in the military and yeah, like veterans that. coming back, you know, with these horrible respiratory illnesses from burning, you know, who knows what, uh, when they're deployed. Um, but yeah, that, that was something that came up as well. 
Yeah, because he's just torching a whole bunch of stuff that probably shouldn't be burned. In in um in Mamber's diary entry on this, he talks about like more in the landscape sense, um, like the landscape shots about how it's nice to see like Wiseman like flexing these cinematic muscles. But I think you can also apply that to the party scenes. Like, so we're, we're seeing like people party outside a bus or like you're seeing them in the bar uh, and there's this like great uh, lighting in that bar uh, that we're not like accustomed to seeing in, in a Wiseman film. And, um, and then, yeah, you're getting like these big, like spotlight lighting uh, with yeah. the, with the, the bus partying. And it's just these Texans partying and singing and drinking um, and Leo Goldsmith talked about how these party scenes, uh, strike like a shift in, in the tenor of, of diplomacy and like post Vietnam America saying that, like he said, uh, they give the sense of a sort of provincial enclave of American culture carved out in a space between two warring countries in the desert. And, uh, one of the two, one of the, one of the only two uh, movie reviews of this film, I mean, like, again, resorting to this, like, bar- like there's barely anything on this really? film. Well, so I'm surprised. Yeah. Uh, but call- the, one, of the, one of the reviews called these drunken party scenes an easy attack um, that, like, Wiseman inserted them because, like, the rest of his film doesn't have that much to reveal. And so this is, like, an mm. easy way to, to, like, point at these, like, buffoons or whatever but I, I don't think these scenes are an attack at all and I, I mean I don't think Wiseman would would think of them as an attack either I mean it fits in with the boredom of the place and the leisure but also important for for like how more like as important for how they party more than like that they party like it's filled with like yeah. all of these like great images like the boot like drinking out of this cowboy boot is like one of the great Wiseman images I think yeah, and the entire thing kind of functions as the like final. It's a build up from the Thanksgiving uh-huh. uh, scene, which kind of it seems like it's a weekend of just partying, maybe, and that's the just climax of all that. And it's just yeah, there's this element of desperation and just like there's nothing for these people to do in this place, so they binge drink and <laughs> get crazy and play football and the. I don't oh, even know they, what this they tackle is. each other more. Than uh, are they play playing football, football or are they just kind of fight? Yeah, it? It's unclear, exactly, I think. Yeah. And they talk. They sing like the eyes of Texas. <laughs> yes, it's more more surveillance. I was gonna say, yeah, talking about like Benson and Anderson's idea of like multiple meanings within scenes. You know, the eyes of Texas are upon you uh, with this. You know complete surveillance operation you know it's 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 uh uh i guess like regional and cultural but it's also uh a threat almost you know like a political threat um and we get that great shot later on you know if if we if we get the impression that oh maybe this is just a one-off party for thanksgiving you know of a forklift just like toting away yeah. a pallet full of booze you know it's like oh, okay this is kind of par for the course living here i like that grant like yeah. pulls out like a cirque like relates that scene to like a cirque moment of seeing like these like veneers of like understanding that there's like danger behind this <laughs> like when you see the pallet of booze um yeah but i, I, I want to talk about the errol morris uh essay from 2011 in paris review um because Errol Morris is, is like a, a very big fan, like probably the world's biggest fan of, of this film. And um, uh, he, he, I really appreciate the way that he writes about this movie uh, and about Wiseman in general, just because like 
one he isn't using like the same academic like frameworks that that are used all over, like that are just adopted and passed on he's just sort of like reacting with this like admiration but also uh he has a similar sense of humor as as wiseman i think that really yeah. allows him to tap into this like particular and particularly fascinating wiseman film um but yeah he he, he has also these great anecdotes about like his about wiseman's son like <laughs> <laughs> like why like him going to visit Wiseman to watch these movies and his son Wiseman's son being like which boring movie are you going to show him like the two hour the three hour yeah. the four hour one and then his wife like falling asleep next to Wiseman watching Sinai Field Vision um but yeah uh he he says like Wiseman has had the the honesty and supreme decency to portray human society for what it is a madhouse which I think is is uh, a useful term yeah, definitely the case here. And I, I think this is the case with a lot of them. I feel like this could have been longer. I feel like it could have been hmm. twice hmm. as long. Because I'm just so many questions left at the end, which maybe is good. It's it's good to have questions. I think it's part of it always. But Yeah. He, he I, talks I about more what's Morris, happening here. Morris talks about near death and how like that's the longest. And like he has this like sort of like pithy, like, you know, it could have been longer. Uh, thing um, because it gives you like this feeling of like aging and and, and whatever and um, I think that that could be applied to Sinai Field Mission of like this feeling of just like boredom um, and the the many ways like you could uh, I could easily imagine a version of this movie where you're watching them play uh, poker for much longer or yeah, which exactly. they're playing Texas Hold'em which is also funny um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but like where you're watching them play billiards uh, like much longer that type of thing um but uh yeah he, he's he talks about all of the like evocative images and and has this this line in some total a feeling of immense dislocation meaninglessness and isolation uh but he but he also taps into like the core fascinations of of Wiseman work like particularly during like the, this early period but this this contrast that i thought was really rich between like Wiseman's direct cinema style and the surrealism of his perspective. Um, and which I, I, it feels like something that's been maybe like under our nose the whole time. Like we've, we've pointed out like, uh, you know, Maisel's and Penna, like Pennaback, Pennabaker and Leacock. Um, and as like sort of this, you know, these colleagues of CV cinema, but this juxtaposition of like what you expect when you see, when you when you're like going into a CV documentary, with this absurdism, and um, I don't know, I'm I'm sure some people like surely go into something like Follies thinking it's like this very important and bleak thing, which is which which it is, but like, not how I would frame it. You know, it, it's exactly what Morris calls like this madhouse idea, and it's very funny and idiosyncratic as much as it is like dark and sad. Um, but yeah, just this like understanding of. Or, or the effect of the that the viewer can have watching something that has this approach that we're used to being very like interested in repertage and uh, a, a certain like seriousness um, with like what we see in Sinai Field Mission is just like these people being bored, and that's yeah. Funny. Have you uh, read the IMDb review? There's one IMDb review. <laughs> no. No, please, it's, it, it's from a veteran of the Sinai Field Mission, and he's not happy with the depiction. <laughs> He says, this is not how it was at all. This is completely unrealistic. It's a, yeah. So that's all there is. Yeah. yeah. 
Huh. But yeah, it's it's not intended to kind of sum up the whole thing or give, give a full picture of what was happening. It's the experience, I guess, in, in a way. Of yeah. There's, just, I read like some on, on Letterboxd and like there, because a lot of people like kind of go through Wiseman's work, especially once they came up on Canopy and uh, yeah. they don't like this movie either. Like, <laughs> just like, this is so boring and there's just like nothing going on for like the first hour. Um which is a bit discouraging. Which is weird. It's weird. Yeah, because, I mean, this one in particular, we were talking about, Sean, it's, like, so dense. And, like, really even is, yeah. even even the the first, like, ten minutes before we get this kind of incredible boardroom scene of exposition kind of setting the stage and, and letting the viewer in on what's happening here, you know, there are already all these visual elements that have clued us into, like, the whole situation, right? And it's, like... Uh, uh, by the time we get that, we get all this explanation. Like we're we're already pretty well situated just through filmmaking, uh, and it, it's it's like really impressive. And and you talked about kind of flexing these cinematic muscles. You know, I I noted that like Brain was kind of uh, aping Ansel Adams with some of these shots. You know, of like like rolling landscapes and stuff. Um, but yeah, the the general reception i think i think this and the films that immediately proceed and follow like for whatever reason uh slipped under the radar or are less viewed or hold less interest maybe because they deviate a little from the strict like american institutional formula i mean i can only speculate but um for for one reason or another the the attention just isn't there like it is for a lot of his other work yeah and i'm sure in the intro we uh will talk about like that struggle of like finding stuff uh and and like the what the critical reception of the last couple films maybe like how that led to this point where like people were just like not covering yeah. wiseman anymore um and there was like another like academic piece that we read or not academic it's from a, like a lit pub uh three penny review or something but um where it's all about like documentaries and uh talk about how with canal zone and sinai field mission wiseman like basically jumped the shark and how it became <laughs> yeah. like too it, it became too much work for the viewer <laughs> like uh which it, again is like really discouraging um because it's like oh it's not titica follies it's not like law and order it doesn't have these like self-evident like importance to it um and yeah i mean like all three of us like adore canal zone like it, it's it like, yeah. sucks to see like uh people just like shrug it off as like this this weird exercise or this like well he's he's doing this project i guess this is what it's gonna be like <laughs> yeah. yeah i guess expectations had kind of formed around like him being a certain type of filmmaker and it, maybe a shift was occurring that people were not comfortable with which just was harder to see at the time where he was going with it maybe oh yeah i, I think just viewing it with between Canal Zone and Maneuver, it fits perfectly as this like trilogy of. It seems like he would have loved to make a Vietnam movie in Vietnam, mm. and obviously that couldn't happen. And this, these three kind of function in a way, in some sense, showing the pivot that occurs after Vietnam is winding down or is over, yeah. but also showing the kind of same impetus that led to Vietnam being displayed in a different way. Yeah. I think I think they could, you know we've talked a lot about how Vietnam is, is present and as an undercurrent through the early films. And like, I think yeah. these films can 
be looked at as a way of processing the trauma a little bit and and uh the reverberations now that the conflict is finally ended yet here we are and i think this is you know most pronounced in in maneuver um but that you know the the ways in which this has irrevocably changed like american attitudes especially towards uh engagement in foreign countries yeah it's a, it's a change of tactics yeah, I mean the the three penny piece, uh, Rafferty. I mean, is is frustrating for a lot of reasons. Uh, but you know, the the thing that was just most baffling to me was he was he was saying what he looks for in a documentary is like this this investigative element, and he cites like Shoah and like Thin Blue Line and things like that. And I'm like, how how are you not like? Weissman to me is like the most investigative he's investigating like just the minutiae and the quotidian like like we're we're look we're looking at people playing ping pong with a microscope you know <laughs> well i'm sure rafferty is having a ball with the the true crime renaissance but um <laughs> yeah. I, I and, and as much as like you said jesse like uh you know hindsight's 2020 this like well we know where it's going now but it is refreshing to remember or just it, it's cool to see like with like whether it was meat with Mamber's contemporaneous review or David Denby's like Canal Zone review is like oh there are people who got it like and that were like yeah. really smart that like it's it's not like um it's not like you had to it's it's not like you couldn't understand the work um without the hindsight um but obviously a lot of people just probably weren't interested in doing that work as well yeah, I think you don't need to have done work to enjoy it or to appreciate it, but I think it does help to kind of understand, having seen the previous movies and also just the context in which it's being created, because in some sense, this is another Canal movie. It follows the end of Canal Zone and to a, basically a mission that's intended to protect the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. from It had been blocked previously twice in the, the Suez Crisis. I think Egypt sunk ships to uh, block it up purposely. And then later it was blocked for six or seven years after the 67 war. And this is all kind of shutting down. They mentioned it in Canal Zone, I think, actually. The, the, the traffic right. there has increased because yeah, exactly. the Suez has been blocked up for this period. So they're there for diplomatic purposes, but they're also there to keep the uh, economic channel flowing. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I agree. Like what you're what you're saying about like it's you don't have to do the work, and I don't want to frame it as like doing work to watch these movies. Yeah, exactly. It's more of like I guess, are you turned off that you have to like like are you turned off that you can't just like get it like by just like I guess passively watching it like that that um that it is rewarding to to think about and to watch again and um. I, I, yeah, I don't know. There, there's obviously um, an opacity that like Wiseman engenders, like that that's part of his personality. Um, but and, and that can just like people can bristle at that. And I think because they are so entrancing, it's easy to sometimes get sucked into the rhythm and then not see anything beyond that. Like just the flow of what's happening, and just see this as maybe just a movie about. <laughs> a bureaucratic situation and not have to think any deeper because you think you've seen the whole thing. Yeah. And being like, where's the, where's all the, like the interesting, uh, soliloquies, you know, like where are the people saying like weird stuff, um, which this particularly doesn't have, but, um, uh, are there, is, are there any other, uh, notes that you want to touch on? Um, Jesse? Um, 
I have a lot here to see. Um, while, while you're looking, maybe I, I um, wanted to ask you both about the ending to this film, because it's this oh, yeah, really definitely. long procession sequence uh, that even for me, I found a bit opaque um, to, to what you were just talking about of, you know, this sort of Ghanaian contingent uh, marching uh, for the benefit of officials. And I don't know if it was signaling, signaling maybe a, a transition of some sort, uh, but we get, we get them marching in front of the camera in a way reminiscent of basic training where that's kind of this mass of abstract bodies and shapes just sort of moving before the lens. Uh, and it was interesting to read the John Davy interview, how Weissman always has him. If someone enters a frame, he always has him hold until they leave the frame. Um, and sure enough here, the final shot, they're marching past the camera and they leave the frame and we're left with this, you know, desert hill and a zoom into the hill and then a cut to the credits. Um, and just sort of what your guys's impression was of that sequence and uh, the meanings within it. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, you're left with sort of like where we started with this, uh, this like void that it kind of like zooms into um, that's going to be there after they leave after they leave the buffer zone, like this place is still going to be here. Um, but I also, I mean, this is kind of jumping ahead, but I, I can't help but also think about like the way that maneuver starts. And I don't know what the, they, yeah, they feed right into each other. Yeah. And I don't know what the significance, I mean, obviously it's a trilogy, but like that, I don't, I don't know if there's more to it than that, but do you have thoughts, Jesse? It seems like it's a lot about just appearances and about display and showing like uh, the kind of maneuver. The entire thing is about just, in one sense, it's a training exercise, but in the other sense, it's just like this overt demonstration of force capability for like, I, I guess for the Soviet Union, just to show like, this, this is how we train, look at all of our, all the stuff we have, and we're able to just kind of run this elaborate exercise. So it, the Ghanaian thing, I think, is feels like a smaller version of that, where they're displaying their training and they're showing off like the force here, but at the same time, it's against this backdrop of the desert. It feels like there's some element of hubris here, also an element of like, why is this happening? Who is this for? And what are we protecting here? Like, there's the the just kind of emptiness of the whole setting is impressive throughout. It's really, it's one of the movies where you see a lot of outdoors, but at the same time, there's often nothing there besides sand. And that that yeah. reading also kind of reads into like sort of this like uh, uh, proclivity that he has for pageantry for like ending on pageantry. Um, That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, even more than Canal Zone, I was struck by how, what you were talking about, Jesse, how little of this is within, confined to, like, a single building, you know, how much open space and, like, not walls <laughs> uh, we get, um, even even starting from without, you know, the first kind of 10 minutes are all out in the desert, and I think what you were just describing of the sort of, you know, the desert's still here, uh, maybe uh, illuminates it for me and thinking about th again the scene with the guy digging up the device in the sand and and reburying it and then like sweeping the sand in the desert uh what errol morris calls this kind of like sisyphean exercise you know of like why why are you moving around sand in the desert you know and and like i guess that it's kind of 
asking the same question at the end here is like why why are we expending all this military might in in this sort of wasteland yeah it's a place that seems of purely tactical value it's there's and again i'm sure there are things we're not seeing outside the frame there's probably parts of this area that are not just sand and rocks and hills but it's used for the purpose of and heightening the absurdity of all this force being displayed over something that no one really actually wants it seems like mm-hmm. other than the, for the reasons of proximity to each other and kind of creating the buffer zone or right having something between them and yeah the use of the outdoor scenes is so good there's just so many these like sisyphean type things with the person biking through the desert <laughs> it's not really clear if he's if he's exercising or he's going somewhere he shows up again and again and then later there's a jogger and i'm not sure if it's the same person in the desert there's the sweeping of the sand there's the, there's, uh, when they leave the, the when they after they pass the bedouin uh burial ground and there's like that great like seventh seal like portrait shot of them walking across oh yeah <laughs> there's the sunbathing and then connected to the sunbathing there's that very weird shot of this guy overwatering this plant mm-hmm. that's for about five or six seconds he's just drenching this thing and it's like dying and it's not gonna help and then the basketball scene which is like very yeah, prison yardy <laughs> totally yeah. balling in the buffer zone putting it through yeah. her legs that was pretty fun. <laughs> Which again, you know, the, the interesting like meaning and editing and scene building. We get her taking a shot, and then we cut to uh, a shot of the hoop and the ball going in. And I'm like, you know, why was it important for Weissman that yeah. her, she makes this shot? I guess <laughs> or the dart. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, the darts. It's it's yeah. It feels a little like cheeky to me. It's just like, yeah, I, I can do this too. Like, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the, the, the also showing these like pastimes and these facilities then draws that line of uh, the restrictions on who's allowed to use them. Because mm-hmm. there's that thing later with the fight over, they're technically allowed to use the recording studio, but they're using it too much to listen to records right, or something. Right. Well, I got back from Cyprus Thursday. If I was over there, I had procured a couple of records that I wanted to make some tapes over. And Friday and Saturday, it wasn't until way after bingo Saturday night that I was able to get in and use the recording equipment because the UN troops were in there, had it tied up all the time. Yeah. I and was wondering how far the courtesy extends. That's my point. I don't know what the policy is. Uh, have they been extended all these privileges, or is it just for SFN use? <laughs> they have been allowed to utilize everything in our recreation facility, excluding the meals. Now, how all UN people? However, uh, it has, it's also been uh, policy that uh, they will not, that uh, their presence will not deny our people the right to use any of those things. It's sort of a, if it's available type problem forget who it's the Finns again maybe or one of just these groups that's technically everyone is allowed to have equal access but really ostensibly like uh, de facto it's right. e-systems as priority followed by state department followed by mm-hmm. and then we don't even really see where the Ghanaians are they're I think in a separate site and I'm not sure where the Finns are yeah that's right. the same site it, which also like reminds me of like a scene the way that like the nuns are just sort of like remote like they're somewhere they're somewhere near but there, yeah. he, he's not interested in showing us uh, the layout of that in proximity. Well, um, I wanted to ask you before, I guess, as we wrap up, 
Uh, just like kind of generally, as we've we've talked about sometimes uh, with guests here, um, if you can like abstractly talk through like how do you watch a Wiseman movie? Like if you were talking to somebody, like sort of introducing them to what Wiseman is or like why it makes sense to you, can you kind of explain like um, what the yeah? How do you watch a Wiseman movie? It's a good question. I mean, I think there's multiple ways you can watch it. Like, I find that if I'm watching it for the second time, I'm seeing it differently than the first time. But when I'm watching it, I'm trying to just kind of view every scene as a building block and then see how those connect with each other. Because it often feels like they're, he's creating some kind of composite. It's like there's often the feeling of like you're watching someone paint an impressionist painting mm -hmm. of something. And there's all these little bits that then it looks fuzzy, but then when you view it together, it comes together to form something that's still fuzzy. It's never, you're never getting a full clear idea of what you're seeing, which I think is intentional, but you get a feeling of what you're seeing and you, it always ends a very rich portrait in the end. That's uh, I, I like that that kind of better articulates, I guess, just like my idea of like accumulation, um, like this, this lack of, of, of clarity. Um, yeah. Sort of this like pointillist approach, but yeah. you don't, always know or like it shifts what that image actually is yeah yeah and it seems like each movie has a different kind of flow of how long the scenes are and how the, the composite is formed like in this one there's a lot of shorter scenes and there's also longer scenes which i guess is the case in most of them but yeah the, the once he gets to the like leisure stuff it's like rapid cut yeah that's a very like it's it's kind of just displaying the, uh, the fact that it's everyone's having a weekend off and it suddenly goes into this fast one thing into the next and yeah, it's very expressively shot mm -hmm. the, the pool billiards game and the use of music in that is great with uh, the weird southern disco nights. cover of the southern nights <laughs> which i tried to find out what that is or who sings it i don't know <laughs> who that cover comes from but huh. it's bad and weird <laughs> and then later when the uh when they're drinking outside and there's the first the rolling stones memory motel and then into the uh, eyes of texas mm -hmm. which they're singing yeah, I like Member calls it just like a musical, which like especially the second half <laughs> yeah. it basically is. There is a lot of music, yeah. Uh, well, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciated yeah. uh, talking Absolutely. about this very strange movie with you. <laughs> it's a very strange movie. And thanks for writing about it when you did, because uh, uh, it helped me. I'm glad I just randomly happened to choose it. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's true. Well, um, yeah. we will talk to you later. All right. Thank Thanks. You. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.